0: The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Uh, If you're here today, and if all of your kids gratefully eat everything you prepare for them, and none of them are picky eaters, blah, 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 good for you. (laughs) Some of us were picky eaters ourselves as children, and now in what I can only reckon is God's justice for our parents, we are raising children with very extraordinarily tuned palates that can discriminate with 100% accuracy be- between brands of wheat bread, t- uh, brands of peanut butter, and even pasta shapes. It's amazing. This is true for our family, and if it's true for you, I see you, friend, in solidarity. One of the food types, however, that can unite the Novak clan is fruit. Those jungle diet-eating Novaks will go all out on fruit-filling plates and bowls and gorging themselves on watermelon, strawberries, blackberries, pineapple, for example. But chief among the fruits for us are Michigan blueberries. And not just any store-bought blueberries that probably come from Maine, but hand-picked blueberries picked from a local organic farm right in the place where we live. It's something of a tradition each August for Katie to keep refreshing the farm's website to see if the blueberries are ready and when they're ready. And since they're only ready for a brief time, Katie loads up the kids, brings along a grandparent or two, and journeys out to the rows of blueberry bushes on a hot August day to arm themselves with buckets and to spend a couple of hours picking blueberries. The goal of these trips is to collect several pounds of gorgeous, plump, bluish-purple berries that can be frozen and stored for the winter months of eating oatmeal or pancakes or for adding to fruit smoothies on a Saturday morning. Now, church, you should know I have been banned from these trips due to what you might call my less-than-optimal picking methods. My last trip out to the farm was a few summers ago when I ran a quickly-pick-everything-and-sort-it-out strategy that resulted in me quickly Filling up a bucket full of something, but it would be generous to call what I picked berries. See, is where Katie took her time browsing the bushes, selecting only the perfect, just ripe, and beautifully blue fruit. My smash and grab approach produced sometimes blue, but mostly green, sometimes white, overripe and squishy, underripe and rock hard. I even added more than a few beetles to my collection that were in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> And when it was time to weigh the fruit, my fruit was dumped into a box, and I'm fairly certain I saw the farm owner gasp with horror when she saw what I managed to scrounge up. It was then that Katie kindly let me know that I was not going to make a career out of blueberry harvesting. And, you know, maybe she'd start going, well, I'm at work in the future. I believe the exact quote was, Joey, look, there are things you're good at, but picking blueberries is just not one of them. And, you know, she was right. I know I've told that story before in a sermon, but I thought of it, and I thought of Katie's gentle reprimand to me this week as I studied Jesus' parable in today's gospel, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Church, we agree that Jesus was good at a lot, right? I mean, preaching, A+, plus, healing, A+, plus, storytelling, A+. A plus. Triumphing over the powers of sin and evil and death. Nailed it. A plus. Carpentry? I don't know. I'm assuming A, but maybe he washed out of Joseph's carpentry classes. But Jesus was so good at so many things. But look, when it comes to economics, can we just say Jesus was in over his head? I mean, if today's parable is any measure of Jesus' understanding of how the world works, we can safely say D-plus in economics, Jesus. The parable of the workers in the vineyard, some of our Bibles title this one. Our medieval ancestors knew it as the parable of the late-come workers. Today's parable about God's kingdom comes after Peter pulls Jesus aside at the end of chapter 19 to ask Jesus earnestly if he and the other disciples are going to receive something extra for their decision to leave their jobs and their families behind to follow after christ what about us peter wants to know what will we receive and jesus says look if you followed me you're going to participate in sort of administrating this kingdom of god that god is bringing And Jesus says, look, Peter, everyone who sacrifices things for me will receive a hundredfold in return and will inherit eternal life. And then Jesus tells them this parable. He says the place where God is in charge, the kingdom of heaven, is a bit like this. God's kingdom is like a farmer who needs workers to harvest grapes. So over the course of a harvest day, the farmer goes to the marketplace and picks up a bunch of day laborers to work in his vineyard since the grapes were ripe and needed to be picked ASAP. The first batch hired at dawn are guaranteed a full day's wage, what was known in the time as a a denarius, a full day's wage. The second group hired at nine are promised a just wage, a fair wage wage. What is right? The third and fourth groups hired at noon and three are also promised a just wage. And a final group, a fifth group, hired at five o'clock just an hour before the day's work was going to end were also hired but no wages were discussed between the landowner and those hired. So far so good. Then evening comes. The shift whistle blows and the workers line up to receive their wages. The farmer's chief manager calls up the workers group by group, starting in reverse with those who were hired at 5 o'clock, those who worked just under an hour. And what does the farmer, the vineyard owner, do? He pays those who worked an hour the full daily wage. Not a prorated amount based on the number of minutes they worked. Not an amount based on how many grapes they harvested. A full day's wage. A full denarius. So when the 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. 12-hour shift workers see this, and as they wait for their turn to come up to get paid, we can understand. They think they're going to receive more than just one denarius. Why? Because basic work economics, right? If an hour's work is worth one denarius, then 12 hours work is worth... 12 denarii, especially given the volume of work that they've had to do in comparison. They assume that if the landowner pays people who worked an hour of full wage, they're going to receive more. Wrong. They get the same amount, a single denarius, and they're upset about it. And maybe we're upset for them a little, right It feels unfair, even unjust. They complain to the farmer, look, we had to work through the long hours, we had to endure the bugs and the heat and the tiredness of being on our feet for 12 hours, tending vines and tying branches and picking ripe fruit and carrying baskets down to be produced into wine, and somehow we get the same as the workers who barely even broke a sweat. And they end by saying, you have made them equal to us and the farmer replies with kindness friend look I didn't do anything wrong to you you and I agreed when I hired you that you would work the whole day for a full day's pay now you've worked a whole day and you've received the full day's pay I have done what is just I have kept my promise to you but it's also my money and it's my land and if I want to be merciful To these last hired, I get to do what I want. Maybe, the landowner ends, you are just jealous because I am generous to somebody other than you. And so Jesus concludes, the last will be first and the first will be last. Church, today we continue our conversations about the kingdom of heaven. That chief main topic Jesus was concerned in his teaching Uh, If God's kingdom is to come as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, if God's will is going to be done on earth as it is where God dwells, then what will that look like? Jesus took great pains to tell his disciples that the kingdom of God is not necessarily only something that will happen one day far off in the future, but that Jesus somehow is kick-starting that kingdom project now, even in this broken world, and we as his followers are called to find those glimmers and refractions of the reign of God here. Here, in our common life, we can train our eyes to notice where God's kingdom is already breaking into this world, disrupting its status quo, and transforming people's lives. Today, in our parable, we get to train our eyes a little bit to notice a kingdom that is being built on a foundation made of both justice and mercy. But let's sit with this parable for a little bit longer. I mean, can't we just pick this parable apart a little bit more and see if we can poke it to glean anything else from it before we rush just to making it all about us? We're good at that. But let's sit with the parable here for a moment. And to understand the parable just a little bit more, we've got to understand a little bit about first century economics. We have to understand a little bit about agricultural work, and we have to understand a little bit about grape harvesting. Let's start with economics. Jesus tells us that the workers hired at the beginning of the day worked out term negotiations with the farmer, both parties agreeing to a set wage that was in fact fair to the type of work being asked them to to perform. The expectations of the work and the wage for that work, a single denarius, were clearly communicated and both parties were in agreement about the job and its pay. Now a single denarius, what the NRSV translates for us as the usual daily wage, was not a pittance, nor was it a luxury. Historians have researched things like this exhaustively and some of what they found is interesting, like this for example. Historians of the ancient Roman economy estimate that each year the average citizen required uh, about 700 pounds of wheat, seven gallons of oil, and 43 gallons of wine. Put that citizen in a family of four and historians believe the total needs would have been more like 1,800 pounds of wheat, 17 gallons of oil, and about hundred gallons of wine. You could survive with far less but this is what would give you enough to eat with extra to store. The cost for these goods varied by region, but in ancient Palestine, where Jesus lived, historians estimate the cost to be about 100 denarii per year. That means that in an average family, worker in a family of four would need to earn about one denarius every three to four days if they were single. Or, uh, and if they were single, they could earn one denarius every two weeks and they would still be able to provide for their needs. But historians conclude that if you're earning less than that per week, less than one denarius a week, you're flirting with the poverty line, and any less may cause you to become destitute in time. So on account of this, right, we can imagine that if there's a day's job that pays a full denarius, it's going to be eagerly sought out, right? This is one of about you know, a a few times, I one about a hundred times each year that a person would need to work and here's an opportunity, boom, knock it out. Okay, let's talk about agricultural work. Agricultural calendars in our day and in Jesus's day orbited around two main cycles, planting and harvesting. These moments of the year made it necessary for farmers to hire additional labor. They needed help to get the soil turned over and seeds planted in the spring and they needed help to harvest the crops when they were ready. Some crops had a large harvest window. Mustard or beets, for example. You could have several weeks, six weeks sometimes, to bring in that harvest. But other crops have very short harvest windows, like grapes, where if you're harvesting by hand, you might only have two weeks of ripeness before the grapes change too much, and you cannot any longer make wine from them costing a person profit so if your labor is limited and you can't get to all your, vi- your ripe grapes in time you might end up leaving some to wither on the vine and if your business is winemaking you get the idea you need all those grapes picked quickly so what's a farmer to do well in Jesus's day a farmer would go into the marketplace and hire day laborers to come and do the seasonal work of harvesting crops if you're going to be a day laborer, you need it to be able-bodied, able, capable of working in hot conditions, bending in awkward positions, and depending on the job, you need to be able to move heavy harvest bags or barrels. You'd have to be able to lift them up onto carts for transport. You'd need some expertise as well because there are right ways and wrong ways to cut grapes from a vine, and the farmer would want the grapes to be kept, the vines to be kept in good condition. All this to say, in the parable, when the farmer goes to the marketplace first thing in the morning, he rounds up the most able-bodied workers. Those who looked well-fed, strong, and who even may have had some experience doing this type of job before. These are the ideal workers, and they get hired first. And they agree that the job will pay a full day's wage. Good. Into the vineyard they go. But as the parable goes on, The farmer begins watching the slow progress of the harvest, and he sees that more workers are needed, and so he returns to the same marketplace several times to hire more groups of workers, uh, some at nine, some at noon, some at three, workers who, interestingly, may have been working an earlier job and who were trying to put together a couple jobs at once so they could have enough to earn a full daily wage. Or... Some of these workers may have had sick parents to take care of or who had children to care for and who couldn't get to the marketplace at six. Each of these groups also gets hired and they agree to be paid what is fair. They certainly don't agree to get a full denarius, and that makes sense. At five o'clock, the farmer comes looking for one more group and he finds them the people who had come to, who had been in the marketplace, but who nobody else had hired. Why weren't they hired? The text only gives us how the workers respond. Nobody has given us any work. And why this might be true is interesting. Scholars have speculated that perhaps this is the group bearing all of the marks of the people who were not able-bodied, people who were not strong enough People who were too young or people who were too old. People who were dealing with illnesses or who were limping and using crutches. People who were overlooked by others for temporary work jobs because of course they were. They were in no position to work a full day. Perhaps this group of people wasn't even looking for temporary work because they knew in their bones they would never stand a chance of getting hired. Maybe they've been standing in the marketplace the whole time, kind of in the background of society, the way the poor often feel like they are just in the background, unremarked, by people looking for somebody more important than themselves. When When the farmer hires this group of people, they never even discuss wages. The end of the day is nearly in sight, and maybe for this group, they wager that if they just put an hour of good work in for this landowner, he'll hire them back the next day for a full day of pay. I don't know, but they end up going into the vineyard without agreeing on a wage. And what I'm trying to tell you, church, is that all of this so far in Jesus' parable tracks 100% with what we know about the ancient economy of agricultural harvesting. Jesus is an astute observer of the realities of his day. And his example so far would have been completely recognizable to his rural agricultural listeners. But then Jesus does his Jesus jujitsu. And he completely upends expectations. All of the workers lined up in reverse order are paid the full wage. The full denarius. For those hired first with their agreed-upon wages in hand, this is, of course, a deep travesty and a perversion of all that is just in the world. And so they file a formal complaint with the Better Business Bureau and with the farmer, which could be easily summarized quickly in the words of a child, that's not fair. The problem is, it is fair. It is just. The farmer fulfills the covenant he made with the first hired workers. The farmer pays his obligation to those workers in full. The farmer is a promise-keeping guy who keeps his end of the terms and he pays what he said he would pay. That is the definition of justice. Fulfilling the obligation you have toward another For those hired last, however, this wage goes beyond merely what is owed and ends up being excessive. According to the conventional economic expectations of the day, this wage is an outrageous act of mercy and grace far beyond anything the farmer was obligated towards. A full day's wage for an hour's work done, presumably by people who couldn't cut it for a full day's work. Whoa! And for those hired last, this is a joy-filled moment. For those hired first, it's patently not right. Church, what do we do as Jesus followers in our day with this parable? I mean, is this parable irrelevant to us? Is it just a relic of the first century when people in the church were stressing out about whether or not Gentiles should be included into the same faith community as people who were part of Abraham's line Uh, Maybe this parable is just Jesus' way of telling the Jewish believers to chill out a little and accept, too, that the Gentiles were part of God's project. I mean, maybe. But I think that the parable still has more weight and heft for us today, even in 2023, because I do not think the parable is about economics at all. I don't think Jesus is giving us an economics lesson and telling us to go and implement this system in our world. Human depravity and selfishness being what they are would terminate that project almost immediately. I do think this parable has everything to do with church life, though. What it means to be part of a Jesus community at a time when God's kingdom is still arriving in fits and starts. And we have been summoned at our baptisms to go into the vineyard of the Lord and continue Jesus' farming project. But I think that the parable rises and falls on Jesus' introductory words to Peter at the end of chapter 19. Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for me will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. This parable is about the invitation of Christ to come and follow. An invitation that is going out into the marketplaces of our world at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3, 5 p.m. Even when everything feels like it's wrapping up and ending, the invitation still goes out. The invitation goes out because that is exactly what Jesus does. He invites, come and see, our Lord says. Come to me, Jesus says. Follow me, Jesus says. Go into my vineyard also, Jesus says. The struggle in the parable is for we who have been in the Jesus community for decades To recognize and celebrate the arrival of those coming for the very first time, knowing that the wages we shall receive from Christ have absolutely nothing to do with our output, nothing to do with our merit. Nothing to do with the number of dollars we've given away, the number of hours we've spent serving the line at neighborhood breakfast, the number of children we have who are well-adjusted adults doing fine. Nothing to do with how well our life is going or has gone. Nothing to do with the way people speak about us in the community. Nothing to do at all with the quantifiable, measurable things we know that we've done in God's name. Nothing to do with how many Lego pieces we've collected. At the end of the day, we find that those who have done so little of the same work, who have spent so little time, who have given so little money, those who have kids who are dealing with complex issues of pain and addiction, those whose life is hard and rough And hurting those who are on the fringes of society to begin with. But who show up at Christ's invitation for an hour's work. At the end of the day, we find that they too receive the same wage. Because in the view of the kingdom, Jesus was right. Everyone who follows him will receive a hundredfold. No matter how long and hard they have worked. Everyone receives more than what they've given. The struggle for us in reading this parable is to shed our Western economics, our market economics mindset that tells us that longevity earns privileges and grace and mercy are nice, but only for the naive. And the only thing that matters is work output. The good news of the kingdom is that the only one whose work output matters is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was faithful where we were faithless, who was righteous where we were sinful, who humbled himself even to death on a cross when we do not like even being inconvenienced a little. The faithful merit of Christ is the only work that matters in God's economy. And that work, the work of Jesus' death and resurrection, has planted a vineyard in this world. A kingdom vineyard, a vineyard planted in the soils of justice and mercy, a vineyard into which all humanity is being invited in every generation, across every race and language, within every socioeconomic class. You and I have been called to work in Christ's vineyard no matter how much we can do or how much we've done already. The question for us is not to ask, what about us? What will we get? But rather, will we go and will we labor in the vineyard of the Lord alongside whoever else Jesus invites? Church, I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen.